A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nae purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. What were your thoughts on the Women's World Cup? I loved it. It was great. Yeah, that was awesome. It was so inspiring. I was actually at the game, so it was really, really good atmosphere to be in. I guess so. You know, it was really cool. Like especially when they kicked it out, and it was just like the crowd went wild. It was so cool. And in your life, have you ever seen anything like it? Hello and welcome to Our Changing Worlds, Kōklerkin Kanantene. The Women's World Cup final, in which the Blackburns defeated England, was one of the most exciting games of rugby I have watched in a very long time. And players Grace, Eve and Poppy agree with me. But before the final whistle, before Aisha Letaiga dotted down to put the Blackburns in front, a defining incident in the game was a head-on-head collision in the 15th minute. on the side for Woodman. I'm seeing no mitigation. Are you seeing the same thing? 100% agree. So it's a red card to 14. A red card for England's Lydia Thompson and concussion for Portia Woodman. She later said she couldn't remember the match and suffered headaches for two weeks after. With increased research linking brain disease in athletes later in life to head knocks and legal proceedings being taken by hundreds of players against rugby's governing bodies, now, more than ever, researchers, coaches, administrators, parents and players are desperate to understand what the dangers might be and how to make rugby safer. Today we catch up with a group of Christchurch researchers looking into this at high school level. But first, I headed along to some training to speak to some of the players themselves. It's a chilly autumn evening and I'm on the sidelines of the North Hagley Park pitches in Old Tautahi Christchurch. It's a very different setting to a packed Eden Park on World Cup final day, but this is a scene playing out each evening in many places around the country. The under-17 ladies team of the high school all-boys rugby club have just finished up. I'm Jasmine Pybal. I'm 15, I'm from Lincoln High School. And I'm Poppy Baxter and I'm 15 and go to Christchurch Girls. Hi. And you guys have just finished training. How was training? It was pretty chill, just learning some moves and drills and yeah. No head knocks today? No, 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 no. Were you even training tackling or anything like that? No, today was more just like getting to know the play and just kind of going through basics. How long have you been playing rugby? Yeah, but... This is my second year playing for club, but third year altogether. Um, I think it's six or five, five or six. I wanted to catch up with Jazz and Poppy because they've both been involved in this research study. It's investigating collision incidents and magnitude for junior rugby players across an entire season. What do you think about the study? I reckon it's quite good because especially around this age, we're still kind of trying to learn like, you know, where to put your head in a tackle, and everything so you can get in quite dangerous positions. Have either of you had concussion before? No, never. Never? No. Is it something that you worry about, like head knocks? Not on myself personally, but other people. Yeah, I don't really think about it during the game, 
No. And when you say other people, you mean your teammates, if your teammates suffer a concussion mm, or something. Because, like, some people, like, have already had head knocks and, like, if they get more, then they can't play and, you know, just that worries me a little bit. Another player I spoke to, Lauren Edwards, has just joined the study for this season. She explains a bit more about how it works. Uh, we've had a cognitive testing and an MRI. We also got our teeth scanned and got a pretty tight-fitting mouth guard. Is that what you have in your hand? Yeah, it is. Can you show me? Of course. So this has been perfectly moulded to your teeth? Yeah, it's like 3D scanned at the orthodontist. Okay. And what is the little... That looks like there's some kind of chip or something inside there. Yeah, it tracks the, the movement and the collisions while we're playing and training. So you, this is your first year, you're going to wear this at every training and every game, and yep. then you'll have results on your collisions at the end of the year. Yep, that's it. As people start to scatter, Lincoln University PhD student Nicole Spriggs is collecting up the math guards. She'll download the data and be back at the next training or match to give them back to the players. She's been pitch side tonight with a video camera, recording what's been happening. So we line the mouth guard data points up with the film and we just click through the different mouth guard data points and look at the video for a few seconds either side of that data point to see what's happening. So if it's a tackle, if it's a tackle drill, if they're just running into the goalpost or something silly. <laughs> so if there's only one player on the field, you can kind of get through their data points pretty quickly if they've only got maybe 10 collisions in that game versus a game where there's a whole team and you can have up to... 200 data points for that whole game that you have to look through, which can take quite a bit of time. This is Nicole's second season of collecting data. This year she's working with Christchurch Girls High School rugby team. But because many of the players also play club rugby at under 17 and women's levels at high school old boys rugby club, which yes, is a confusing name for a club in the context of the story, she's here to video two training sessions this evening. The second session is getting underway, so I leave her to her mahi and we arrange to catch up on the University of Canterbury campus so I can learn more and also meet some of the other research team members. Nicole has a sports and exercise science degree in which she did a lot of anatomy, plus an honours project looking at how players prepare for tackle impacts on the field. Her colleague Stefan Henley came to his PhD research through a different pathway. I'm a speech therapist by training, um, and a lot of my clinical background was in rehabilitation from traumatic brain injury and like post-concussive injury. So through that, I just got really interested in that particular population and that particular um, field. So when I was casting around for a potential PhD topic, the project here that Nick is running at UC was really a perfect fit. Nick Draper is a professor of sports and exercise science at the University of Canterbury, leading this large multidisciplinary project. The goal is to answer a whole suite of questions around collisions in junior rugby. But to start, they need good data about the number and magnitude of incidences that players are experiencing. And this is where Nicole and Stefan's work comes in. We don't really know the exposure of head impact collisions that adolescent rugby players are being exposed to over the course of a season and I think it's a it could be framed as an important starting point or a baseline for understanding um, that exposure hopefully will lead to some good decisions being made in the future in terms of being able to inform parents and coaches about what that level of exposure is. 
So while Nicola's working with girls' junior rugby teams, Stefan is working with boys' under-16 teams in the same way, using the mouthguards and attending each game and training to video the sessions. The mouthguards have accelerometers in them, which measure the impacts for us. And then we're able to download that data and we get a whole list of impacts for each session, how big they are and how many there were. And after that, our job is to verify that those impacts are real. Um, So we do that by looking at video footage that we've also shot. Obviously, there's a lot of head movement happening in any game. But the mouthguards are set to record events only where the player's head moves above a certain acceleration. The mouthguards only pick up hits that are above an 8G threshold. So Gs probably don't mean a lot to you. But um, if you think about if you're jumping on a trampoline really hard and your head moving like that, that's about 8Gs. So anything above that sort of speed, the mouthguard picks up. So we're looking at all of those little and big hits and impacts to the head, how they also affect that structure and then... Obviously concussions occur in rugby as well and they affect the brain, so we hope they don't get concussed, but it's a great opportunity for us to learn as well. So this study is looking for all incidences of head knocks or jerks, not just concussion. While concussions are often what's talked about in the media, and hey, mea culpa, using the Portia Woodman example, there's growing evidence that repeated sub-concussive knocks, including whiplash-style events where the brain moves within the skull, are also an issue. When you get hit and your brain shakes within your head, it stretches, which stretches all of the pathways between the brain, well, within the brain. So these stretching of those pathways in the brain creates that stress and that strain on the brain, and then that affects that ability for the different regions of the brain to connect together and work together. To try hone in on any brain changes across a season of rugby, Stefan and Nicole also have the MRI and neurocognitive tests that player Lauren mentioned. At the beginning of the season, um, before the players have preferably had any collision training, they come in and get an MRI scan with us, which is about 40 minutes. Um, We look at the functional and the structural part of the brain. Um, And then they also come in and do this neurocognitive test with us, which is called the NIH toolbox, which looks at lots of different components of the brain and um, how the brain functions. And then we're going to do that again at the end of the season with them to see if their brain structure or functions changed across the season. And then you can look at those head impacts that we pick up from the field to see, oh, this player's had this many impacts and they were this big and they've had more change in their brain or less change in their brain or anything like that. And then if an athlete gets concussed as well, they come back in for a third session with us to do the MRI scan and the neurocognitive testing again to see acutely following that concussion what's happening to the brain. So the MRI will be analysed for brain anatomy differences in individuals pre and post the season. A lot of the MRI research has come out of American football and all of these athletes getting CTE and um, only being able to find that when they've died and cutting open their brains and seeing that their brains aren't quite what they should be. CTE stands for Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, a progressive degenerative brain disease linked to repeated blows to the head. It can start with memory loss, mood swings and difficulty in concentrating, developing into progressive dementia. It can also result in aggression and lack of impulse control. Researchers and clinicians are desperate to figure out a way to diagnose CTE in patients before death. So they've been looking at brain images between athletes and control groups to see if they could spot differences. That's why MRI sort of came in to see what's actually happening in the brain in real life. So 
that sort of informed that possibly in these MRI scans and other sports that have done um, research with these MRI scans is that we might be able to see possible shrinking in the size of the brain but also in the connections between different regions of the brain and um, in the functional side of it possibly that regions that used to connect together might not be connecting as well together anymore and yeah there's lots of different ideas kind of floating around in the MRI space. And the neurocognitive and linguistic test they are using will give them an indication of brain function. It looks at different areas of how we think and how we use our brains. The language elements to it, there is some reading and some vocabulary, but it's designed to be such that it only takes a snapshot of someone's language ability at that time. It's not meant to be a reading test. But from the cognitive standpoint, it looks at things like your reaction time, um, your attention, your sort of short-term working memory, your processing speed, like how quickly you're able to do things and how accurately. From that, it gives us what's called an age-corrected standard score. So it'll give us a score that is... um, corrected for someone's age and another important thing to note is that those scores we're only using as a comparison within um, what's called within subject which means we're only comparing the player's score pre-season against post-season we're not comparing it against anyone else. Stefan and Nicole have done one full season of tracking players and they're at the start of their second. In the first cohort Stefan followed 20 boys and Nicole tracked 16 girls. They haven't got to the MRI or neurocognitive analysis yet, but they have analysed the mouthguard data and confirmed events by video, which means they have some of that baseline data about the number of events in training and games and the size of the hits. And because the study is done in the exact same way, they can look at comparisons between boys and girls. In terms of the size of the impacts, it was actually remarkably consistent between the boys and the girls and also quite consistent across matches and trainings. So it was roughly around about 20 Gs was the average impact magnitude. But there were some differences in, in terms of the incidence. So that's like the number of impacts. So there were more impacts on average experienced in games versus training. And the boys did tend to experience on average more impacts um, than the girls over the course of the season. Why make this boy versus girl comparison? Well, one of the things that's come out of their data is that boys, in general, start rugby earlier and so have been training for many years already. While for the girls, it's a bit more variable. Some, like Poppy, have been playing for years. Others have started only recently. Which might help address practical questions around whether it's better to avoid tackle training and contact rugby in younger players to protect their brains, Or if you should start training early so that you have good technique baked in from a young age. As Stefan said, they recorded more impacts in games than in training. The average incidence they found per game was 109 impacts for boys and 75 impacts for girls. To be clear, this is for the whole team, not individuals. For individuals, if you want to get an average, it's around six head impacts per match. And while the average magnitude was around 20 Gs, there was a range from their lower cutoff limit of 8 Gs up to the highest recorded hits of 131 Gs for boys and 96 Gs for girls. In the literature, they kind of float around this idea a little bit that anything over 100 Gs is quite significant. So there's a lot of research showing, um, not saying that this would be causing a concussion, but there's a lot of research saying that anything above 100 Gs, you're quite likely to get concussed. There is a lot else around that. There's people like the ones in our study, we had quite a lot of impacts above 100 Gs and we only saw two concussions last year. So there's a lot else at play 
but that's kind of an idea that has been floated around a little bit that anything above 100 G is quite significant and quite a big hit. And in terms of G's, like you're talking about G-force, like acceleration, but what does that mean, you know, for if I was running into, is that like me running into a wall and <laughs> um, top speed or, you know? So it's all quite situation specific and it's actually quite hard to find um, real life comparisons to what these are. So um, a couple that we've sort of found is like, as I mentioned earlier, about eight Gs as if, as if you're tramp- uh, jumping on a trampoline and um, how your head sort of wobbles about while you're jumping on a trampoline. So that's the lowest impacts that we pick up with our mouth guards. 100 Gs is about if you jumped from around a metre high and landed stiff-legged and that big impact that you kind of get as you jolt to the ground. And then sitting around like 40, 50 Gs is if you got punched to the face. So that's a pretty strong one. Yeah, when I said that to some of the girls, um, that 50 Gs was getting punched in the face, they were also shocked because they were like, oh, it doesn't feel that hard on the field. And it's like, well, when you've got adrenaline and you're excited to play and everything, it just doesn't seem as strong as it actually is. Yeah. And there was a, um, a major study published recently, a review into football or soccer, um, that found that the average magnitude of hitting the ball was 20 Gs, to give you another sort of point of comparison. So far, there's not been much research into head impacts in junior rugby, just a few studies here and there. And as for girls... Females, there's pretty much no research at all on them, so anything on them is super important, and females aren't males, so um, all the research at the moment is on males and then they try to put it into females, but we move in different ways, we have different senses of gravity, our brains work in different ways, so you can't really just say, oh this works for males, so we're going to put it into females when we work in completely different ways. But Aotearoa New Zealand is doing its bit to help fill the junior rugby research gap. There was one study a few years back that used patches instead of math cards to monitor hits. Along with this current work in Canterbury, there's another study underway with Matai Medical Research Institute collaborating with Gisborne Boys High School rugby teams. And a big study into incidences was commissioned by World Rugby in 2021. It's being run by the University of Otago, led by Associate Professor Melanie Bussey. They followed nearly 700 community athletes from the ages of 12 up to 24, both men and women, using the mouthguard and video combo. Over 116 games, 200 training sessions, 500 hours of video, and 40,000 head acceleration events. They're currently preparing and submitting scientific manuscripts. So I guess watch this space to see their results come out and to see how World Rugby responds. But Nicole and Stefan's work, not just with the incidences, but also with brain imaging and testing before and after, plus information from the players about how long they've been playing, will hopefully help guide the conversations to come about how to best protect junior athletes. It could potentially form some sort of baseline for knowing, OK, this is what they've been exposed to. And so maybe that can help parents make decisions about the safety of the game and players. If we end up seeing sort of no change or very minimal change, that's still something that can be reported because we can say, you know, over a season of rugby, we didn't really see any change and that, that's still valid as a, as a finding as well. Players, coaches, parents, opposition teams and referees have all been really supportive of the study, say Stefan and Nicole. They needed permission from all to do their research. But of course, they interact mostly with the players 
who they see between four to six times per week mid-season. Because remember, they're at every training and every game. Do you guys, do you get involved? I mean, are you, are you cheering for the team? It's really hard not to, actually, yeah. I mean, obviously, we're trying to be neutral researchers, but, yeah, you do you do get invested, yeah. There was, um, you know, a particular game last year where they won with a last-minute penalty, and that was, you know, yeah, tremendously exciting. But, yeah, you do, you do get involved with it. And I think that's one of the cool things about being involved in this project is that we're not, sorry, Daniel, but we're not stuck in a lab in a windowless room, but we are yeah, out in the world and meeting people and interacting. And I think it's pretty cool to have that as part of your um, PhD research. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, it definitely may open my eyes a little bit to female rugby and community rugby because um, the girls that I was with last season, they didn't have any female manager or coach for the team. They just had males. So they really appreciated me being there just as a female in the space. And are you also, you know, as well as cheering for them for the last minute penalty, are you also doing that like a sharp intake of breath if anybody <laughs> hits their head or the tackle goes wrong? Yeah, it's, it's a funny one though because um, there's definitely impacts that I've stood on the sideline and been like, oh, that's a big hit. And then I go back and look at the mouth guard and data and it's actually not that big. And then there's other ones where they don't appear to be that great. And then you look at the mouth guard and it's a huge hit. And you're like, oh, she took that well. <laughs> Some of these hits will get further studied by the colleague Stefan mentioned, Daniel Stitt. Daniel is also doing a PhD at the University of Canterbury and he's part of the wider project team. The windowless lab he's stuck in is in the engineering building. We're in the aerodynamics lab. It's kind of an everything lab, really, but they have two massive wind tunnels in here for testing all sorts of things. Yeah, giant blue constructions that yeah. go the length of this particularly long room. Yeah, they apparently had to build the building around them because they can't move them. But in the corner of this very large room, we're standing beside something that you helped to construct. Yeah, so that is our drop test rig, which is about four metres tall with a crash test dummy head in the middle, which is guided by two wires when it drops, and we can control what height it drops from. It is kind of ghoulish looking. A tall metal frame with a perspex front, a rubber landing pad, a rubber coated head attached to a metal arm held up by a wire connected to a magnet. The head can be lifted up to a certain height, and then dropped. And Daniel then gets a data readout of the forces the head is experiencing. We record the acceleration of the head. So we have accelerometers inside the head that can tell us the, the acceleration in G-forces. We've got like nine different accelerometers in there that we can use to work out the rotational part as well. Accelerometers just do a linear thing, so like forward, back, up and down, whereas with a whole bunch of them, you can work out whether or how much the head rotates and how fast it rotates. And that rotational motion is believed to be, or currently believed to be, the primary driver of brain injury, especially in the, the deeper parts of the brain, like the corpus callosum, a little bit in between the, the two hemispheres that crosses over between them. He's got two key questions that he's focused on, starting with whether the current standards used to test rugby headgear are appropriate for the task. So for my PhD, I'm specifically looking at how to better represent rugby field impacts in the lab and then extending from that sort of what we can learn about the way that rugby headgear may or may not mitigate damaging head impacts on the field. 
And currently, with the standards that we do have, these might not reflect the on-field conditions. And so we're kind of looking into that to, first of all, see whether or not they do, and if not, what we need to change to better kind of represent those in the lab. Danian can tinker with a lot of the parameters. The position and angle of the head, which affects where and how it impacts with the surface, whether it has a neck, the height it's dropped from, and the surface it's dropped onto. This enables him to test the existing standards, but then also to recreate some of the actual incidences that Nicole and Stefan have gathered from the field. He gives me a run-through. So we'll just lift it up to... Yeah, so this is probably like a 40 centimetre drop-ish, 45 centimetre drop. Yeah, I'd say, do you want to push the button? But you kind of <laughs> kind of got your hands full, so... Three, two, one. So yeah, that's a pretty standard impact test in the lab. That's kind of terrifying. Yeah, that's what everyone says. Most people get kind of shocked by how loud it is and don't believe that's really what happens to your head. But yeah, according to all the studies, that's pretty much it. Now, Daniel's focus is on headgear, and headgear can only help with incidences in which a person's head smacks against something, not with those whiplash events I mentioned earlier. So he'll be focusing on those times where a player's head impacts something, another player's head or shoulder or the ground. He'll recreate them in the lab and then test with and without headgear, because along with getting their fancy mouth guards, all the participants are also given the option to wear provided, World Rugby-approved headgear during the season. Of course, there's not a real brain inside this rubber-coated drop-test rig head. And Danian is just getting a readout from the accelerometers. So how can he equate this to brain strain? There's a research group that released a finite element model of the, the head. They made it open, uh, publicly available. So you can download that and... and kind of rapidly estimate what the strain is throughout the whole brain for for a given impact. So we've just done that for all of the lab impacts and the field impacts as well to try and kind of get an estimate or or some, some more, a slightly better clue of what's actually happening within the head. In the future, he hopes to use all this data in a machine learning context to help figure out what the most important things to think about are. Maybe unlock clues as to what the most dangerous kinds of situations are on the pitch that result in the worst impacts. People have used similar methods to find that the impacts to the side of the head might be more damaging than anything else for different parts of the brain and that there's certain types or certain gameplay situations or or they call them features but gameplay features so like it could be specifically moving in one direction or, or something like that that is a better predictor of whether or not an impact will be injurious or not. Ultimately, the goal of this project, and others, is working towards making junior rugby as safe as possible for the players. So the last word should probably go to them. Why do you guys play rugby? For the game, but also I like I love the culture, you know? Everyone's just out there, nothing on the field is kind of taken personally and it's just good game. I like rugby because it's hard and it's challenging and it's physical and it's aggressive and I like it because it's really hard and you have to push yourself and there's always something new to learn. So you think you'll be playing for many years to come? 
Hopefully, yeah. we don't get don't get eaten. Don't get eaten. This should be good. Na mihi nui kia Nicole Spriggs of Lincoln University and to Damien Stitt and Stefan Henley who are doing their PhDs at the University of Canterbury. Thanks also to Professors Nick Draper and Michael Hamlin and a massive thank you to the old boys high school rugby club players who spoke to me. Poppy, Jazz, Grace, Eve and Lauren. Ko klerken kanana hou te kaihotu o tēne hotaka. I āwhina mai a Liz Garten rawa ko Ellen Rikers. I produced this one with help from Liz and Ellen. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Also, a quick thank you to Associate Professor Melanie Bussey, who updated me on where the study she's leading for World Rugby is at. Melanie has previously spoken on RNZ about this study and to Our Changing Worlds About Concussion, and you can find links to both those pieces on our website, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds. I'll also include a link to another piece that RNZ did on the Gisborne study. You can also subscribe to our newsletter there and find links to follow the show on different podcast apps, which I recommend that you do. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter and Facebook with the handle at RNZ Science. Te nākoe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai, tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.